out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Hello and welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. So in this episode, we will begin our look at the collaborations between H.P. Lovecraft and E. Hoffman Price. Uh, these collabora collaborations began after uh, E. Hoffman Price and Lovecraft met in uh, New Orleans. Uh, Robert E. Howard had something to do with uh, them getting to know each other. Um, their most famous collaboration is the sequel to The Silver Key, and we'll look at that in the next, in the next episode. It's, uh, it's, I guess, the last great of the Lovecraft revisions or collaborations. Um, and that means we're getting really close to the end of this, this series, at least in terms of, of the literature. So um, the story I want to look at today is called Tarvis of the Lake. Um, it was written in 1932 and published in Weird Tales in 1934. Um, so this is uh, a pretty interesting story. Uh, now, Lovecraft's uh, role in this seemed to have been largely uh, in his conversations with E. Hoffman Price, um, according to my editors here. Um, let me see. Yeah, uh, he Price met up with Lovecraft at the lobby. Uh, of his cheap hotel on St. Charles Street, and the two authors stayed up late in the night talking and comparing notes while Lovecraft guzzled cup after cup of super sweet coffee. Much of the time was spent talking about this story. Now later, their collaboration on uh, Through the Gates of the Silver Key would be based, would be more like, uh, I think Hoffman wrote the draft, and then Lovecraft made substantial revisions to it. But it it's, ends up being much more of a 50-50 kind of collaboration. So this is a, it's a price story. Uh, Tarbus of the Lake is a price story that Lovecraft... Um, you know, contributed to in, in rather unknown ways, I suppose. Um, so the story is is about uh, kind of an imaginary love affair. So our, our main character, I guess, is a guy named Rankin. And Rankin is talking to his priest um, about this quote-unquote hypothetical friend that he has that's causing him great anxiety. Uh, now this woman that Rankin poorly is inter interacting with that he can't believe exists but seems to be real to him uh, is is white and that there's an interesting kind of racial component in this story that's maybe explain away we can explain it away by maybe conceptions of archae of archaeology or uh, or history at the time it was written um, but anyways we'll just wait for that um, anyways this uh, he asked this this father this priest has there ever been a woman named tarbis and the priest turns around and says well in matter of fact there was a woman named tarbis um in in kind of legend um and here's what it is she's from ethiopia ethiopia of course had a lot of interactions with with um egypt going back to 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 the, the old kingdoms of egypt and, and whatnot and it even shows up i think in the bible um or you know, it's it's kind of in that that Near East kind of legend is these interactions between Egypt and Ethiopia kind of. And then this gets into the whole debate that has been going on, I think, since the 90s. But I think even earlier, because it shows up, I actually in some of the Robert E. Howard Lovecraft letters is about the the 
skin color of the Egyptians, right? So people who kind of embrace a Western Civ narrative, claiming Egypt as part of the West, tended to lighten the skin of the Egyptians. And then Afrocentrists, people want to claim Egypt as part of African history, might tend to darken them. And there's there's still an ongoing debate about that, if it, if it matters. Um, but that's not true of Ethiopia, right? So Ethiopia was always assumed to be part of black Africa, I guess. So he's kind of shocked. It's like, if it's an Ethiopian story, this, this Rankin woman of my mind that I interact with is, is white. And then this is what he says. Ethiopia in those days was an upper kingdom of Egypt. A queen of that country was no more Negro than Ramses the Great. So basically, it's a, it's a queen from Egypt, right? That's kind of ruling Ethiopia. Um, so they tell the story, and basically, she was offered to Moses as a bride. Moses refused, um, and she ended up having to abandon her throne. And she wandered off to France to the city that later would be named Tarbis. And near there, there's another city, Lapurdum. Um, so, and there's kind of like some modern counterparts here, but apparently this place, Lapurdum, La was full of black magic, a lot of kind of sinister local traditions. This and God punishes the town by destroying it, creating the lake that now sits there in France. So it's really fun use of, of kind of ancient history and, and local legend and, and kind of the local folklore about how physical features get created and it's tied up to this man's uh, you know apparent delusions about having this affair with this woman Tarbus so Rankin says well what are you doing to me doctor it's it's not a doctor it kind of seems like he's talking to a shrink but he's like what are you doing to me father you're trying to talk me out of this and you're giving me basically a plausible reason for her existence and that there's there's truth this is the story that apparently she tells me um, and he says, that means, quote, this Egyptian queen never died. She's living in Lourdes on the street that leads to the chateau. I know, I sensed, and now you have confirmed it. And then the father says, well, no one can live that long, right? It's denied by both the church and science. Uh, so you're basically just being delusional here. And now Rankin tells a little bit more of his story, how he was... Uh, he tried to escape Lourdes to try to get her out of his mind, but he couldn't. That she had this kind of, she looked like a statue in the Louvre to, to him. Um, but he traveled all over the world trying to escape her. And then he's like, and now you tell me that, that this is a real story. And so you basically uh, are confirming my, my anxiety, you know, increasing my anxiety. Quote, now you tell me that a legend of a Tarbus who was queen, Lord knows how many centuries ago, and of the lake, her, her very name today, Dulac, Dulac. Why do you say I'm utterly insane? And um, and then the priest tries to talk him out of this. And he f- kind of succeeds. Rankin leaves the meeting somewhat a little uh, shored up in his, his beliefs and, and, uh, and feeling a little bit more stable. Quote, but through Father Patrol's assurances gave Rankin a new grip on himself and a weapon to which to combat his obsession. The priest's words had at the same time strengthened Rankin's ever-present feeling that he was dealing with one whose name was written in the first pages of the archives of the city, end quote. So he feels a little bit more secure, but still he, he has this firm doubt that he's interacting with actually someone who's been alive for, for thousands of years. So we get this wonderful description of the setting that evening. Uh, Quote, that evening Rankin sat once more in the luxuriously furnished reception room of that outwardly unpreposing room, which was perched on the steep slope of the hill 
whose high-walled fortress and square dojon built by the Muslim conquerors commanded the Valley of the Gave, end quote. Wonderful kind of historical context here with, uh, you know, going back to the early Middle Ages when Muslims did, you know, occupy part of um, this part of France. And then he sees uh, Tarbis, and he's, he's since come back from his journeys trying to forget her, and she's like, well, you tried to forget me, but you come, came back. And he says, like, your memory followed me. I couldn't escape you, so I returned. And then Rankin begins to, to question Tarbis about her age, about who she is, what she is, pretty systematically. Uh, he says, uh, she says, well, there's nothing to prevent you staying in Lourdes. I didn't seek a claim on you, but you always left. And he says, yes, and I always returned. But this time I'm going to get the answer. You're so much more than you appear to be. You're not one woman, but a woman a world of women in one and you're withholding a hundredfold more than you'll ever reveal. And he keeps insisting that she answers his questions about her age and who she really is. Um, which I guess kind of in a, in a thematic sense, there's, there's a suggestion here of the unknowability of women, uh, that women always being kind of a mystery for men. And, but rarely do men like stand up and demand the answer to these questions. They just sort of let them keep stay a mystery kind of like they want them to. Um, but you get the sense that Tarbis is not used to this kind of questioning. Maybe she's haunted others throughout the years in similar ways. Um, and she says, Tarbis, do you know that most of the time I've been resisting the thought that you were not a woman at all, but something? And she replies, must you know all about me? John, can't you, can't you take anything for granted? End quote, which again, I guess makes me think there's a theme here about kind of the unknowability of women from, from the perspective of the man um, or the frustration that men feel over the mysteries that lie behind the, the women's, woman's eyes. Um, but anyways, don't worry. This story is not just that. This story does get into some really nice supernatural elements above and beyond the mythological. So she turns it around. Tarbis then turns it, you know, she keeps trying to pirouette to avoid his questions. And... He's, you know, and she and he keeps coming up with new ways of kind of confronting her on it. And finally, she says, you know, well, if you really love me, if you really cared for me, if you really love me, you'll stop asking these questions saying, John, can't you forget all this? You do not care for me, do you? Or am I just another riddle that your insatiable mind must solve lest it perish of unsatisfied vanity? Must you know everything? End quote. Another uh, kind of. I can see a parallel as well in this in in many people's relationships uh, in the this uh, you know the, the the desire we all have to have some kind of secret life maybe from our our loved ones a little bit of a something hidden away something private and then the desire of the other to kind of unlock that and know it and discover it and finally she gives in and says okay I'll reveal my rival my rival to you um, and he says, well, don't you mean like my rival? And she says, no, my rival, because if you're if this is revealed to you, if this rival is revealed to you, then you'll be taken from me. Quote, my rival in my damnation, she will drive you away. She, she will everlastingly destroy the happiness I have stolen. We have stolen, but since it must be. And then she takes him uh, up the staircase to reveal her rival. And he takes her up, and this, this scene is full of rituals, like they have a drink together um, before doing it. And she shows him a mummy case 
in a niche in the wall. It's like inside the masonry of the wall, she, she's able to like pull some blocks or whatever and reveal uh, a mummy case. And she leaves him alone with this, this uh, mummy case. Um, he, he shuffles around, he looks for a cigarette, and she has some like these long exotic cigarettes, and he lights one of them and starts studying this mummy case through the cigarette smoke. And it's, it's some, some decent imagery here picturesque kind of imagery i think um and he sees this gilded mask and so he starts to think about if she's this aged if tarvis is this aged then she must have had many previous lovers and then he thinks how like he thinks if this mummy had lived as long as tarvis it also would have had this history and he thinks had the occupant of the sycamore case Lived until today, she too would have learned from experience that no lover cares for candor about his predecessor. And then we get a shift in the narration, kind of a, re a re revelation uh, that Rankin uh, figures out here. Uh, quote, then Rankin surrendered to a new madness, which was more um, perturbing than that which had so he'd sought to conquer that evening. It was terrifying. He shivered and sat erect in his chair. The scented poison of the cigarette curled unheeded around his fingers and stained them. If the carver had given life and animation to those long almond-shaped eyes, they would be the eyes of Tarbus. The fire of the cigarette ate into his fingers and momentarily broke the spell. He ground the butt into the rug beneath his feet and struck another light to another, to another smoke. Um, but the distraction was not enough to stop the surge of surmise that had become knowledge. That curved antique smile of glint was Tarbus herself, staring at him, mocking in the wooden conventions of Egyptian carving and fighting through the gold leaf into faithful portraiture, end quote. That is, this, uh, the image on the mummy case is the Tarbus, the woman he's uh, been obsessed with and, and fallen in love with. And now he realizes that, uh, that Tarbus is some sort of living dead. Quote, Tarbus had become something infinitely more terrifying she was not one who had ages ago discovered the secret of eternal youth, but rather the product of an Egyptian magic, which had enabled dead Tarvis to materialize and present the semblance of a physical woman. And so he begins to connect things she said over the years, over their relationship during the times they made love, uh, things that confirm that she's a pro like a manifestation of her of her ka, right? The Egyptian uh, sense of a soul. Quote, she said things like, there are nine elements which when fused into a unit make what your eyes see as a single human body. The physical flesh and blood body, the shallow, the double, the astral counterpart called the ka, the soul or ba, the heart, the spirit called ku, the power, a name, and a ninth component, which is the motivating force. All these things mark you are used in the mystical or esoteric sense. Yet this knowledge, if truly interpreted and rightfully can serve to work all the wonders of the hidden Egyptian magic that was codified by Toth. So basically, she is a, uh, a physical entity that's able to emerge from this body because it's mummified, it's able to live together. So it's, this is kind of a story about the Egyptian conception of the afterlife, if it was real, and if someone had a, a, a coffin in, in their house, you know, what if this, you know, was able to wake up and walk among us and, and exist at, and appear as she did in life? with full consciousness and soul and everything. Um, um, so he kind of falls into this, these thoughts and this realization. Then he hears a bell outside and he kind of snaps out of it and he figures, no, 
I'm just daydreaming here. Tarbus gave me drugs. Basically, these cigarettes are actually like some kind of drug in them, making me hallucinate. And that's what's really going on. So he tries to convince himself that that was just a delusion brought on by, you know, the, the cigarettes he was smoking. So he decides the way to find out the truth is to, to actually expose the mummy's real face. So, um, you know, I've seen some of these old mummies at, in museums or things. It's not like the cartoon mummy where you can just sort of pull off the, the, the bandages, right? That these are basically caked in, you know, into the body. But anyways, what we have here is he's tearing away the bandages to get at a real face. And he sees the real face of the mummy underneath the, the bandages. Um, the dust of centuries, Hoffman writes, mingled with the dust of crumbled linen and pungent spices and choked him. Then he stepped back and regarded the shrunken, hideously lifelike features. The gilded mask had been a portrait, but here he faced Tarbis herself. So Rankin decides essentially to free her soul. And the way he does this is he just pours oil from an oil lamp all over the mummy, lights it on fire. Eventually, I think the whole estate sort of burns down. He escapes, but as he escapes, he hears uh, Tarbis calling her his name. Quote, she knew as much of her as still remained, knew that no power could ever restore her, that Rankin had destroyed her. Uh, so he basically puts an end to, to Tarbis. Um, later on, he meets Father Petrell, who says, My son, I was watching across the street. I heard and saw the flames. You have freed her earthbound soul. No, don't try to explain. Little as I know it as you do, but she is released from an abomination. Um, but, um, and he says, like, let's pray for your soul. And he says, no, I'm damned now as well. Um, and he departs the priest. So that, in short, is what happens in the story. So it's, it's just a couple of short scenes uh, centering around uh, this, uh, this encounter, that, this long-time encounter he's had, almost Calypso-like in, in that, you know, but it's kind of reversed in that, that she's been given a type of immortality through her interactions with these men um, over, over the years, apparently. Maybe, yeah, maybe she is kind of like the Calypso figure in a way, but she can't promise immortality to Rankin. Um, but once he realizes the truth, uh, he, he, has to, uh, he has to get rid of her. So a great little story that I think uh, does a great job of not just taking it like the cliches of, of, of Egyptology and, and, you know, like the mummy's curse kind of stuff, the stuff that was kind of popular at the time, um, but I guess Bram Stoker wrote that Mummy's Curse book, not just kind of doing that sort of story, but instead trying to really get at the heart of, of the afterlife legends of, of the Egyptians about why they mummify their belief in Ka, uh, the, the kind of the ever existing soul and all that. And he incorporates that in, I think a really kind of interesting way. So I can't tell you how much of this is Lovecraft. Uh, so they were just talking about it over you know, in a hotel room uh, while Lovecraft drank coffee, um, you know, so I'm not sure which elements are, are Lovecraft's. Maybe he did a lot for the mood um, or that. It's not a story Lovecraft would write. I think he very rarely was interested in the relationship between men and women. Um, but, but 
nevertheless, we have to acknowledge, I guess, some contribution of Lovecraft's. But by and large, I think we can look at this as a, as a E. Hoffman Price story, and I think a pretty good one. I think it's 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 compelling. I, I like. It's one thing I miss reading a lot of Lovecraft. One thing I loved when looking at the Philip Dick stories is, is Dick was really interested in relationships. He was obsessed with with relationships between men and women, and you don't see that in Lovecraft at all. You have to kind of go to the revisions to find female characters and and you know, in this case, a woman sort of antagonist in the form of Tarbus. Um, and I just think what he does here with uh, what Price does with Egyptian mythology and the belief in the afterlife is really, really nicely done. He's even going to throw in some kind of biblical type of mythology and legends as well. So I guess that's all to really say about Tarbus on the lake. It's, uh, it's a fascinating little tale. Yeah, it's, um, it's one to check out, I think. Um, so next we're going to look at a true collaboration, uh, maybe the best example of two raw authors of all these we're looking at, of two authors really each contributing about 50% of the story. So often we've seen Lovecraft providing guidance and advice, rewriting certain sections, or Lovecraft just ghostwriting. Um, but Through the Gates of the Silver Key is a, you know, basically a true collaboration where they both wrote parts of the story and both contributed ideas to it that are very clearly identifiable. We have textual evidence from his letters that talk about his work on this this story. Uh, I talked about those in my series on the fourth volume of the Selected Letters of of H.P. Lovecraft. So it's also a fairly long story, so it might take a little longer to cover up, to, to uh, explore. It's uh, it's obviously a follow-up to The Silver Key, uh, focusing on the character of, of Randolph Carter, um, someone we haven't seen for a while in this series. So uh, that's going to be it uh, for now. Uh, thanks for listening. Let me know what you think, what you thought of Tarbis on the Lake, um, and I will see you next time. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day. Turning away as much as to say you've never known me, stranger. After sharing all your kisses.